So Bishop, our next topic is, is a much more serious one. On Tuesday of this week that we're recording, a grand jury report from Pennsylvania was published that listed 300 clergy who were accused of abuse that reportedly took place over a period of 70 years. Uh, some of those cases are more recent and some are even still being litigated. In addition to other church officials who have responded, um, just yesterday, the Vatican spokesperson, Greg Burke, who's an American, responded on behalf of Pope Francis saying in part this, there are two words that can express the feelings faced when these, uh, with these horrible crimes, shame and sorrow. The abuses described in the report are criminal and morally reprehensible. Those acts were betrayals of trust that robbed survivors of their dignity and their faith. The church must learn hard lessons from its past, and there should be accountability for both abusers and those who permitted abuse to occur. By finding almost no cases after 2002, the grand jury's conclusions are consistent with previous studies showing that Catholic Church reforms in the United States drastically reduced the incidence of clergy child abuse. Victims should know the Pope is on their side. Those who have suffered are his priority, and the Church wants to listen to them to root out this tragic horror that destroys the lives of the innocent. Bishop, when you saw this report, what was your reaction? Billy, uh, before we begin uh, the conversation on a subject, uh, I really do want to say to our listeners that I understand I've, I've issued statements on this. This is a, another podcast on this topic. And I do understand that there is no statement. Uh, there's no interview or conversation like we're having today that is going to perfectly uh, convey uh, answers to all the questions and uh, perfectly convey the the. Uh, sorrow and the sadness that we feel and so i'm just going to do my best here uh, i understand that statements and podcasts uh, are, aren't the answer but we're going to have this conversation i understand yeah. i just be as sincere as possible but in what was my reaction to the report it, it, it's heartbreaking uh it, it is so heartbreaking to see so many of these cases no matter how long ago they were i mean some were before I was a bishop, some were before a priest, some were even before I was born, but it doesn't matter. It's heartbreaking uh, to read of that and to know of the pain for the uh, the pain for the victim persists and the damage is, is so real. Uh, so my initial response and answer to your question was heartbreak for victims and, and shame and, and, and sorrow and embarrassment that any priest could hurt someone he's called to serve and that the process uh, from bishops w was not handled as as best as it could have been. Uh, but it's an opportunity. Uh, it's an opportunity for the church to repent, uh, to recommit ourselves to, to weeding out evil in every human way possible. I mean, evil is a powerful force. Uh, and ensuring that we continue to to do all that is necessary. That's what we have to evaluate every day. Are we doing all that is necessary to protect the vulnerable, especially uh, our children? And so I, I want to take this opportunity to assure people that I would I have never and would never allow priests credibly accused of abuse to serve in ministry. I, I simply uh, would not uh, allow it. Uh, that's one of the key responsibilities uh, given to a bishop in his diocese, especially at this time. And so I think it's important, as you mentioned, that so much changed in, in 2002. We all feel the, the shame, the embarrassment uh, of how things were handled before then. Uh, we, we can't take that back, unfortunately, uh, but we can learn from it. And I think we have learned from it. And I, I, I think it's important. Uh, I know we've said this many times, but I think it's important to repeat uh, what it is uh, that happens 
uh, when uh, uh, a report of sexual abuse of a child is is alleged. Um, and before we even go into that process, you were ordained in 2002? Right. And that's the same year that this charter came out. So as a bishop, you've, you've not kind of operated under a different system. This has always been kind of the system you've, you've incorporated well, into your ministry. That's true. I, 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 ben- I benefited, um, you know, unlike some of my brother bishops who did not have this charter, uh, these essential norms that e- all the bishops promised to follow. I just... I entered into the episcopacy with that at hand, right? And you know, and as I often say, any bishop who doesn't remain faithful to what we all promise as a conference of bishops, uh, it really uh, cannot uh, stay uh, in, in in his office. And so, right. but I I I was given that uh, as I became a bishop right mm-hmm. from the beginning of my ministry. Um, so the first thing we do is we report the allegation to legal authorities. I think it's very important for our listeners to hear that. We get uh, an accusation, a report. Uh, we learn that we cannot be the sole judge, and be, we, we immediately uh, report it to uh, a legal authority. So what does that do? It ensures that a non-diocesan entity is also reviewing the case, and law enforcement has powers and tools available uh, for their investigations that a, a diocese simply does not have. Uh, of course, we cooperate. And we make that uh, commitment. We right. will cooperate fully uh, with law enforcement uh, throughout the investigation. And then it's simultaneously provided to the Diocesan Review Board, which is made up of individuals, most of which are lay people and have expertise, experience in the areas of psychology, medicine, education, law, counseling. And they help to investigate the accusation to determine if it is credible and substantiated. Again, it's already in the hands of legal authorities at right, that point. Right. Uh, and when a credible allegation is received and considered by the review board, the priest is immediately placed on administrative leave until the investigation is uh, concluded. And at the beginning of the investigation, if a preliminary threshold credibility established announcement are made uh, at the previous assignments of that priest, encouraging people to step forward to contact law enforcement if they know anything related to the abuse. Right, right. So, you know, I, the grand jury, it's a, it's a very long report, uh, but it also states it, um, this, if I, if I could just uh, give this statement to mm-hmm. our listeners. Yeah. It appears that the church is now advising law enforcement abuse reports more promptly and recognize new eternal review process uh, have been established for the benefit of victims and justice. Um, and so when I'm often asked what has changed, I could say uh, regarding the process, just about everything. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different uh, situation than it was in the past. Um, you, you recently emailed our priests about this. This is obviously affecting them. A lot of people are asking them questions. What did you share with them? Well, I, I shared with our priests that uh, procedures and process are essential and and they must uh, be implemented. But we're also dealing with evil here, a very evil force, uh, conflict against God's will. Uh, and so we cannot do so without spiritual strength. We have to, we have to turn to that. Uh, and so I, I told them that I share in their sorrow and the anger uh, that they are feeling. This is so shameful and embarrassing. I told them that uh, we need to be united in prayer for those impacted by the sins of priests. And I asked them to do three things specifically, actually. Uh, To celebrate a mass each month for victims of abuse and in reparation for the sins of the clergy was the first thing. 
to practice every Friday uh, some mortification, fasting, stations of the cross, chaplet of divine mercy for the same people. And also to pray a a daily rosary that Mary, mother of the clergy, uh, will help guide us in our response uh, to this moral crisis. You know, interestingly, I... uh, I received. I, I am receiving a great deal of correspondence. Uh, I recently received uh, one letter, um, and it began by saying, "Bishop, you need to have courage. We want to see you as a bishop with courage." And I presume, as other correspondence indicated, that that would follow by the courage, rightfully so, uh, to stand up for victims at all times with courage and with perseverance. But actually, this particular letter went in a different direction. And it said, I want you to have courage to also stand up for our priests. Mm. And it was really beautiful, uh, in, in a sense, recognizing that all the priests who are out there every day doing God's work uh, are suffering a great deal. Uh, but you know what? It doesn't, to be honest, it, it doesn't take courage to stand up for our priests I'm so proud of them, uh, and I see I see what they do every day. And every priest in active ministry in this diocese has not done any of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, and so I really do ask uh, all of the faithful to be mindful of that and to keep our pr- priests in, in their prayers also. And in addition to the concerns of the reports of abuse that we saw out of Pennsylvania, they're compounded by the allegations against Archbishop McCarrick, and we've spoken about that in the past on this podcast twice now. Um, People are concerned about how allegations against bishops are handled. That's a little bit separate from the the Pennsylvania grand jury, but what's going to change with regard to allegations against a bishop? Right, and we are, as you you mentioned, we are hearing uh, lots of concerns uh, specifically about that issue. You know, when we did the charter, when the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, met in 2002, uh, we came out of it with three things, actually. Uh, The charter itself, our our promise, our resolve, and then norms, essential norms for the implementation. But there was also an Episcopal commitment uh, to each other. Uh, to hold each other accountable and, you know, including fraternal correction. Uh, I think that third document is the one least talked about and maybe, as we're learning, uh, the one given the least attention. So we have to go back to that. And uh, to answer your question, just yesterday, it's posted uh, on our website, Mm -hmm. uh, the President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, in response to these questions that you just raised, uh, said that uh, we now have, as a conference of bishops, in preparation for a November meeting, three goals. Uh, one is an investigation into the questions surrounding the situation of uh, Archbishop McCarrick. Uh, something went wrong there, and so we need to know at what level and by whom. So it, it is never repeated. So an investigation is the first. An opening of number two, an opening of new and confidential channels for reporting complaints against bishops. And we left uh, when we came out of 2002. We canonically stuck with the notion that the bishops, which is a fact, are directly accountable to the Holy See. But now we've learned, well, there has to be something uh, more immediate, a, a process where Anyone who has a concern or an allegation against bishop has a, a much clearer path to yeah, creating that. a mechanism. Right. For, well, I can't talk to the Holy Father directly, but how do I get this accusation to him? Exactly. Yeah. And I can, uh, you know, I know, I'm confident that we're going to 
come out of our November meeting uh, with that proposed mechanism, which will be approved, of course, by the Holy See. And the third thing is advocacy for more effective resolution of future complaints. Um, so these goals will be co- uh, pursued according to uh, three criteria, proper independence, sufficient authority, and substantial leadership uh, by the, the laity. So we've already begun a concrete plan to accomplish these goals, are consulting with experts in the fields and as well as the Vatican. And this will be the major issue of our, our November meeting. And Cardinal DiNardo in that full statement, which again, people, you can read that on ArlingtonDiocese.org, made it clear in November, the bishops will not be beginning to discuss. They want to walk away with something. That's they really right. want something concrete to have in their hands when they leave. Exactly. And there's going to be a lot of, so peop, there's already work being done. I don't want people to think we're just waiting until November. We're going to go into that meeting, update it. We're going to have documents, uh, hopefully, in our hands. We're going to do a lot of preparation. So we, like you said, we go in there in November ready to to act. Yeah. And, and in addition to policies and procedures, what would you assure people? So, you know, you can have policies in place, but there has to be the determination and the willingness to follow those procedures. What is your commitment to the, the faithful of this diocese? Well, what I've always committed to as a bishop, uh, that every allegation is taken seriously, is shared with legal authorities, and that no priest in active ministry has ever been found uh, credibly accused of any such allegation or report. You recently had a, a picnic and meeting with uh, seminarians and their families. We mentioned this earlier. It was related to the, the mass for candidacy. Um, with, with Archbishop McCarrick's um, allegations being primarily against seminarians, what was your message to them? Is that something that you raised with the seminarians and their families? Yeah, I did. I uh, We met an hour uh, before the Mass. I wanted to talk to them because they're getting ready. Some of them are already back to their seminaries. Others are, are going Monday. So I said, okay, there is a lot of issues to discuss here before you go back to the seminaries. So the first thing I said to them was this, that I, I believe that uh, our seminarians, I have a, uh, a, a very healthy relationship with our seminarians. Uh, they know that they and they do they can contact me anytime they need to uh, i want them to stay in frequent contact so because the bishop is the chief formator i just use seminarians to assist me seminaries to assist me in that process so uh, i wanted to reaffirm to them that my understanding is that they know that if they have any concerns uh, about uh, improper behavior or, or anything wrong at the seminary that they know they can call me or meet with me immediately, and they trust that I will act on that instantly. Uh, And all the seminarians uh, say, yes, we know that, um, and we recommitted ourselves to that. I assure them that I would be reaching out to their rectors uh, to make sure that as they return, there is a process to review the policies and procedures uh, and really to, to discuss these issues, which I have done. I assure their families uh, that, uh, and they're Dear parents, uh, that I am the spiritual father to their sons. Uh, I treasure that responsibility and privilege, and I assure their parents that I will do everything uh, possible to support, to encourage uh, uh, them in their formation. Um, You know, there are uh, reports. uh, There there recently uh, a report by one former seminarian uh, has surfaced. Uh, some of our listeners may have seen that in social media. Right. Uh, where, as a uh, young seminarian, uh, St. Charles Seminary and St. John Seminary in Boston, he uh, reported on social media 
that there was a, a culture of impurity uh, and, and even homosexuality uh, at those seminaries. So having seen that, uh, both archbishops have said, well, that has to be fully investigated. Uh, this and he, was and a, he reported that he was abused specifically. Right. Yeah. So that was in 2010. Ten, right. Uh, and so um, both archbishops are saying, well, we have to investigate that. That's not anything we would ever accept or, exactly. or tolerate. I know in my time uh, as, as rector of the seminary, 1999 to 2004, uh, that same commitment was there. And, and there would be no tolerance of, of any sort of behavior like that. It's just unacceptable. It cannot be in place in, in the seminary. So I know that's taken uh, seriously. Um, and I have great confidence uh, in, in the seminaries that we use and a great relationship with the administration and formation team. Very good. So if, if anyone listening would like more information on what Bishop Burbage has been talking about with regard to our processes, the process that have been in place since 2002, um, the background checks, training programs, we frequently asked questions, support programs for victims, reporting options for those who have been abused. Go to arlingtondiocese.org and you can either click on the banner. We're going to have that up for a while so that it's easily found. But permanently at the very top bar toolbar is a link called Protecting Our Children. That's a link that will always be on our website on the homepage, easily found. You can find a lot of great resources there. We're also listing Bishop Burbage's previous statements on the situation regarding Archbishop McCarrick and ongoing statements and, and updates with regarding with regards to this process um, of protecting God's children. So episode 11 and episode 15 are two other instances where Bishop Burbage has talked about the Archbishop McCarrick situation and other statements that he's written are there. In addition, his Twitter feed, you know, he's, he's active on Twitter and you can, you can follow him there and, and stay updated with these things. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Billy, because as I said at the um, beginning, there's no one statement, there's no one conversation that's going to uh, respond to every concern or question that people will have. So uh, I'm really glad that, that that resource is so available to the faithful who wish to further uh, investigate. And all other statements from Cardinal DiNardo from the Vatican, those right. are posted there as well. Good.